Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons for this evening's panel discussion and Q&A on medicine, museums and disability. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you here to the college, um, to this event. Um, some logistics first of all. My colleague tells me I should talk about egress, which is apparently a fancy word for exit. If there is a fire alarm, uh, uh, we'll exit uh, either through this door, straight to the door opposite you, or through the emergency exit signs that way. Uh, if you need conveniences, and we will take a break halfway through this evening's 90-minute event, um, there are accessible conveniences around to the left and other conveniences around to the right. The only other thing I would ask is that you turn off your mobile phone, uh, including panellists, of course. Um, this evening's event came to us as an idea in association with the exhibition we currently have on in the Hunterian Museum called Abnormal Towards a Scientific Model of Disability, which has been brought to us by the artist Jude Gosling, sitting furthest to my left. And this got us very excited in thinking about the links between museums and disability, and the links between medicine and disability, and the links between all three together. And this is, we think, of particular interest to us here at the Hunterian Museum because of the potential for medical museums to explore not only the technologies associated with medicine, surgery, and disability, but also the material remnants of the lived experience of disability. And this is something that I hope will come through very powerfully in this wonderfully interdisciplinary panel we have lined up today. So we sat with the back of our envelope and we lined up the people we thought it would be fantastic to have talk about this because of their associations with the college, their associations with the museum and their research in the area. And I'm delighted to say that all of our dream team were able to make it and you see before you tonight. I'll introduce each of them in turn as they chat to us uh, in an introductory capacity um, for about five minutes. And that'll be the structure of the evening. Um, each of us, uh, each of them will talk for five or ten minutes, and then we'll probably at that stage just have a quick break, and then we'll come back. I'll encourage questions between the panellists, because I don't think any of I mean, apart from our Leicester colleagues, I don't think uh, you've publicly engaged with each other before, and we'll of course invite questions from the floor. And we know from those of you we know that it'll be a lively and engaging debate. At about 8.30, I'll try to uh, call us to a halt, and I know from experience how difficult that is, but we'll perhaps continue chatting a little um, in an informal way. So what we'll get this evening are perspectives on medicines, museums, and disability from museology, from history, from surgery, and from artistic practice. And with that in mind... Um, is everyone happy with the setup for the evening? And is ever, can everyone see the and uh, uh, engage with the resources in various ways? Excellent. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, um, who is Jocelyn Dodd, who is uh, director of the Research Centre for Museums and Galleries at the University of Leicester, and for a long time has worked on. Uh, museums and their social role, the impact of museums and galleries. And she, together with Richard Sandel, our second speaker, 
um, worked on a wonderful project around museums and disability that I'm uh, hoping they'll speak about this evening. Um, so over to you, Justin. Thank you. Thanks very much. And it's, uh, I'm delighted to be here tonight and to be part of these discussions, which um, I think promise to uh, introduce some really exciting and interesting perspectives. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my ideas, which are framed around museum practice and around museum research as well. Um, I want to really consider the way in which museums can begin to think about um, disability and particularly to think about how they can also engage audiences in those discussions and debates around disability as well. And this really stems from uh, work that I was involved with in the mid-1990s. I then worked at the Castle Museum in Nottingham which was one of, the, uh, one of the recipients of one of the very early lottery-funded capital programmes. It was an interesting site, a uh, site of a medieval castle, which was a scheduled ancient monument, and it was a, uh, the building itself um, was a Grade One listed building as well. So you can imagine some of the challenges of trying to create uh, and develop a more accessible environment As part of that, Richard and I worked together and we set up a disability consultative group to be part of that process to try and improve access. And that was our starting point. It was very much about thinking about accessibility. Very quickly, uh, the group of disabled people who were part of that group, the Drawbridge group, the discussions, the debates we were having, we were very conscious very, very quickly that this actually went much further than physical access, but it was about the significance of what you would have access to. And the chair of that group, Annie Dellin, I remember her saying, I want to have a mirror when I go into the museum and I want to see my experiences reflected in that mirror. Where am I? Where's, where are the historical roots of people like me? Where am I? Where am I in those collections? So she was very much uh, very influential in shaping our thinking. And uh, the image you can see here is an image uh, by somebody we had... No, we didn't have any idea was in the collection. It's by a miniaturist, Sarah Biffin, uh, who was in the museum's collection. It only came to light later that that was part of the collection. She was somebody who was very established in her own right. Her work was in royal collections. Uh, And it's really interesting for us as a a museum to begin to think that we would have collections like this which showed disabled people. And you can see from the the, uh, representation here a self-portrait of somebody who... uh, who presented herself and showed that she was an artist. She used... Uh, uh, her shoulders to, to paint and her mouth as well. Um, she's disp- her work's displayed in a number of galleries. This led us to thinking much more about the way in which disabled people were represented in museum collections. We secured funding for a project called Buried in the Footnotes where we wanted to begin to um, unpick some of these issues By this stage, both Richard and I were working at Leicester University, so this was a research project which investigated museum collections. It set out specifically to look at museum collections to see 
if there were collections that related to um, disabled people um, and what kind of collections those may be. We wanted to find out uh, where those people's lives were represented um, and how accessible those were to the public. We wanted to get a sense of how they were... uh, how the information related to those collections was presented as well. And we wanted to know what factors had affected... um, the collections as well. So were they made publicly available? What information was available? What factors did curators uh, consider in terms of their dissemination as well? Some of the findings from Buried in the Footnotes were intriguing. Nearly 80% of the collections that we looked at had collections related to the lives of disabled people. Um, we found that those collections included all museum collections, social history collections, decorative art collections, ethnography, military history, archaeology. There was evidence across the the range of those collections. A few were on display, not many, a few. And the ones that were on display, the objects that were on display, tended to represent things like disabled people um, in their 19th century or, or earlier uh, representation as freaks or as specific characters. The giant, the, the large giant from, from uh, the Manx Museum in Ireland, uh, at the Isle of Man, rather. Uh, they represented things like Joseph Merrick, um, the elephant man at the Royal London Hospital Museum. They tended to present the history around uh, medicine as well and the idea of cure and treatment of changing disabled people. We also found disabled artists' work as well. But most of those collections were not on display. Most of them were hidden away and not represented. So what issues did these raise for the museum? Well, I think it, it raised a, a whole range of issues. One of the things that was very clear was that curators were very uncertain about how they should present those collections. They were very unclear um, what they should do. They were aware that there were many issues which made these um, challenging in many ways. There were many display dilemmas. There were many issues that needed to be considered. One of the things around this was the notion of staring that museums are about staring and looking, and yet the experiences of disabled people are also about being stared at often. There was also the idea of should museum displays out disabled people who had perhaps chosen not to represent themselves as being um, disabled in their lifetime. Should disabled people be named? Many of those um, collections in museums were of nameless disabled people, people who had been in particular institutions or had been represented in particular ways where they weren't presented as people but just uh, as something which is nameless. There were many, many very difficult stories to be told. Um, So there were very many issues of this kind. And one of perhaps... The very difficult aspects of that was the shadow of the freak show, which, which people were concerned about how they would represent these issues within the museum, these historical connections. And perhaps one of the other aspects that is particularly difficult and particularly significant in the context of medical collections is the disabled person as the specimen in the medical collection, framed by a medical model 
which doesn't account for the individual. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's extremely opposite to the challenges we face here at the Hunterian about escaping the shared history of the Medical Museum and the Freak Show and about the Medical Museum's uh, function in objectifying specimens in a way that we want to do more interesting things with today. Our second speaker is Professor Richard Sandell, who, as you've gathered, um, is Jocelyn's colleague at the University of Leicester, uh, where he is Director of Museum Studies. Um, he's worked in the areas around museums and social inequality and museums and prejudice for some time. Um, his monograph, um, 2007, Museums, Prejudice and the Reframing of Difference, was, I think, a landmark in um, this area of study. And since then, as, as um, you've heard, he's worked with Jocelyn on the Rethinking Disability Representation. Richard. Thanks. Thanks very much, Sam. Um, I'm going to take up the story, really, from where Jocelyn finished it on our journey of research and practice in this field. And I'm going to look, think particularly about our interest in um, and our thinking about medical museums. I think it's fair to say that we were initially, as a, as a group of researchers, we were very wary of the medical museum for that project. As, as Jocelyn has described, we were interested in why disability was absent from so many different kinds of museum, given there was increasing interest in museums generally in, in hidden histories and engaging with groups who had been excluded, and yet disability was absent, it appeared to be largely absent across that spectrum. So in our discussions with so Jocelyn and myself and our uh, fellow our researchers and disabled researchers that we worked with on this project, um, we knew that medical museums would hold um, rich resources that would attest to the lives of disabled people, but we, we had this broader interest. Nevertheless, we included medical museums in our remit. We included all, all kinds of museums um, and we set out to look at the ways in which disability was represented within them. Our, um, our disabled colleagues had particularly strong feelings towards um, medical collections. And um, I remember both um, Annie Dellin, that Jocelyn has referred to, and our other uh, colleague on this project, Jackie Gay, they went to see the Medicine Man exhibition at the British Museum and came back with all sorts of um, often very strong reactions to the ways in which um, objects in that exhibition were displayed and interpreted, and a couple of them come to mind. In particular, there was an amputation saw, and Jackie was really quite shocked, I think it's fair to say, that the interpretation there focused exclusively on the ornate design of the handle, an incredibly beautifully inlaid pattern on the handle, and also around the technology of the blade itself, which was described in terms of being designed particularly to be able to separate bone from flesh. And there was no space within that interpretation for her own response as an amputee. And that kind of um, curatorial voice was one that she felt, I think, excluded, excluded by. Um, nevertheless, as I said, we included medical museums within our, in our initial surveys. And when we decided to take the research further, we worked with the Royal London Hospital Museum and Archives as a case study. And I went on the first visit to that museum with Annie Dellin, and I remember her being quite anxious about it and talking about 
her unease and she'd been very excited about going to some of the other museums and, and getting into the stores and seeing what material they had. She was rather more cautious about um, going to a medical museum. Having said that, um, we found things in those displays which Annie felt un- uncomfortable with. She found them difficult. But she was also very, very surprised by the way some of the interpretation helped to disrupt certain ideas about disability which she had expected to find. So I remember there was um, an early example of a hearing aid which was extremely large, a huge kind of box. Um, And it was in the story that the museum told, but not to stand in for a sort of um, a corrective to a patient, but rather it was the hearing aid used by a patron and benefactor to the museum. Similarly, the, the one wheelchair on display was also not a patient, but was used by a matron who was celebrated for her advances in um, the medical world and patient care and so on. So these interesting, um, I think quite political acts, curatorial acts, which were designed to not simply locate disability in an entirely medicalised way. So that was quite interesting. Um, We employed the filmmaker David Heavey to develop um, one of the interventions that we we spanned across different kinds of museums. This was our one intervention which was in uh, a medical museum. And he decided to focus on Joseph Merrick, more more commonly known as the Elephant Man, and his relationship to disabled people today. And I just want to read for you very briefly um, what David said about his aims, really, with this film, I think and then I'll show you a short clip. So the filmmaker said, Early on in the project, Jonathan Evans, the curator and archivist at the Royal London Hospital Museum, made the point to me that the various Joseph Merrick interpretations, from the well-known film by David Lynch to the opera to other creative works, often reveal much about the creators in their quest for the elephant man, but say less about the real Joseph Merrick. Very early on, it was apparent to me that in the cacophony of voices who told versions of Merrick's story, the one voice not heard was that of those most like him, disabled people. So he set about um, creating a a new narrative around Merrick and drawing on the um, collections in the museum, but particularly to make that connection with disabled people today. And um, I'll show you this short, it's just a couple of minutes... Coming up now, it may be. I don't, is it possible to dim the lights at the front at all? Is it possible to try that again? Let me. We'll just see if we can fix the sound. We had a little problem with this earlier. Um, is there someone who? Apologies for our technical disruption. Do you want me to proceed without it? Yeah. 
And what we'll do is proceed without the film, have a go at the break, and then try, um, try it again just after the break, if that's okay. We had had it working about half an hour ago. Uh, you'll have to take our word for it. Okay, yeah, no, no worries. We have some... Um, it's the film... It's time for the commercial break. You can screen this um, online for free off our website. We've also got some copies of the DVD, which lasts um, around... Uh, 15 minutes and we can um, tell you a bit more about that here but what our attempt was um, in that project was to interweave the more familiar curatorial, authoritative curatorial voice of the museum alongside those very very um, personal, highly emotional responses to Merrick's story by uh, three disabled people um, who offer experiences and make connections <coughs> based on their own lived experience, particularly um, this is uh, one of those uh, participants in the project, Tina, who talked about her experience of facial <coughs> disfigurement and being stared at and um, imagining as well, going on kind of an imaginative fictional journey of... of um, <coughs> of shared empathetic experience with, with John, with Joseph Merrick. And I think it was just what was interesting, I think, to, to see that situated alongside other films within the museum that you can watch around Merrick, but was to say, as, as the filmmaker said, it was that connection, that the, the voice that was privileged then was disabled people, and that had been largely absent, I think, from the museum until then. So I think I should pause there. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, much. Richard. Thank you for bearing with us with our, our technical difficulties. Um, I'm delighted now to move on to our third speaker, Dr. Ruth Richardson, um, who's an independent scholar but is associated with a number of august institutions, the University of Cambridge, the University of Hong Kong. And it was Ruth's book, Death, Dissection and the Destitute, um, which first piqued my interest in the history of anatomy in medical museums. So perhaps Ruth is to blame for my presence here today, um, and hopefully uh, she'll now you know, uh, pay back with that. Um, she, among her other books, were The Making of Mr. Gray's Anatomy, um, and she's now working on a book on Dickens and the Workhouse. Um, but she's had a long association with the Hunterian Museum here, and it's on those associations that I think you might chat to us today, briefly. Yes. I just hope that people can see my... Slide. If it's too light, could you please tell me? Um, I just hope it will come up. Yes. Now this is a um, a specimen which I actually love. It's upstairs in the gallery, and there's a postcard of it as well. And I, I love it. I mean, I I it upsets me very much because it's only a partial skeleton. The head's gone, the arms are gone, the legs are gone. And it doesn't say who it was. Like so many specimens, it's anonymous. I think it's a lady, because the pelvis looks female to me, but I'm not an anatomist, so I might be wrong. But it's also, she's got scoliosis, and I say she. Do you think it's a lady too? I wouldn't like to put money on it, I don't think. <laughs> OK. But there are more women with scoliosis than there are men, aren't there? Yes, I think on the biff. Yeah, yeah. Prob probability. Probability, yes. yes. Well, the reason I'm so engaged with it is because I've got scoliosis myself. 
And although I can walk about and I don't look too disabled, it is a pretty disabling thing to, to suffer. But you can also live a, a fairly decent life without um, labels because you can hide it more easily than someone who's, who's in a wheelchair or who has got some disfigurement that is constantly on display. So you wouldn't necessarily know that I've got a spine like this. When you see the X-rays and MRIs of me, it looks rather like this lady's spine. I think it is a lady. I'm sure it's a lady. (laughs) Anyway, I like her. For me, it's the the ribs are sort of wings, and there's something rather wonderful about it. But there's also the sadness of not knowing who she was, not knowing where she lived, what she, how she managed the pain and disfigurement of it. I mean, having scoliosis is a funny condition because you, although you don't look disabled, you are. There's lots of things you can't do, like walk long distances or stand in queues for any length of time or climb hills or uh, go around art galleries for any length of time. You can't stand up for long. Um, And sitting still is difficult. You have to keep shifting because you're so asymmetrical. Whatever way you sit is uncomfortable. And the same with sleeping. It kind of dominates your life, but you try not to let it. Um, And so I'd like to know how she managed. I have a feeling she might have been a bit happier than me insofar as ladies of that age and that time could wear corsets and be unashamed of it. You know, you could wear nice things that would straighten you up and make you look even straighter than you might pretend to be. Um, And so it might have been slightly easier to to be a scoliotic then than now. I mean, nobody's actually called me a scoliotic, but that's what I am. I'm a scoliotic. Um, And I'm sorry for this lady because I don't think she wanted to be in the museum. I think a lot of people from that generation which is 18th century she's from, I think, 18th or very early 19th. Um, She'd have probably been body snatched um, for the museum. Somebody knew she had scoliosis and wanted her skeleton for the museum, rather like the Irish giant upstairs, Um, and collected her body and cut off her head and her arms and her legs and kept the spine, which was the bit they were interested in. So it's hard to see this person as a whole person. And it's hard to know, I mean, as a scoliotic myself, I know that that person must have suffered pain and all the disabilities that go with this condition. But there's nothing in the gallery that says that. There's nothing upstairs that says that. You know, to have an inexorable process like that developing within the core of your body... It, it, it is difficult, and you get more and more... You, I mean, I'm shrinking with age, and I know she must have shrunk. You know, you can see there's about four inches missing in height that she would have had, um, and that's the same for me. And what else she couldn't do, and yet also what she could do. You know, we are, disability, the word disability focuses on disability, whereas... What is so extraordinary about what you can manage when you are disabled and yet you can still do things like you doing her art work and so on? You know, it, it's actually... You don't want to be labelled, but you, you can't help it. One is, one is. And one labels oneself and one limits oneself because of one's own 
lack of abilities. Um, but then again, you think, well, what the hell? I'm still going to go on and do all these other things. One's a human being, whether one's disabled or not. And that's what I loved about Jews' things upstairs, where you've got the normal and the abnormal. I mean, I'm wearing my little abnormal brooch, because I, I am abnormal. But, I, you know, here we are with our labels. That's, I think that's, I should stop there. Well, thank you very much. And I think what we was, why we were so pleased that Ruth was able to join us this evening uh, was to lend that long-term connection with the collection and that very personal experience that um, if you hire our audio guide at £3.50, a bargain, you'll hear Dr Richardson uh, relating to the specimen at the time. Our fourth speaker, whose uh, slides I'll uh, manipulate from up here, is Professor Gus McGrother, who's Professor of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Research at the University of Manchester. Um, Professor McGrother has a background in both surgery and bioengineering and is a specialist on wounds and wound healing and is both an academic and a practitioner up in Manchester. He's also a council member here at the Royal College of Surgeons and those of you who are aware of the profession will know what an uh, august position he therefore holds in the, uh, the profession in England and Wales, I should add, in case there are any Scots present other Scots present. Um, And what makes us especially pleased is that he's chair of the Museums and Archives Committee. So uh, even more than the rest of the fellows, members and council members, he sees the nitty-gritty of what goes on in our department. And I'm delighted he's able to join us today. I can work your slides for you. Yes, you'll pop the slides on. Well, I've got my normal badge here. And when I look in the back of it, it's got a mirror and I can see about a quarter of my face, which means I've got some sort of disability, visually long-sighted, something like that. Um, and I suppose none of us are actually completely normal. It's a question of how well we hide it. This is kind of the normal. I, I'm trained originally as a plastic surgeon, although I do virtually all uh, accident surgery nowadays. And uh, this, is, this is the way people want to look, that people want to be beautiful, they want to be symmetrical and there's a huge pressure on uh, the medical profession um, and uh, particularly plastic surgery to to sort of try and drive people along the the norms that are dictated by the fashion of the age. Can I have the next slide? But in fact... um, Sometimes you can't make people very symmetrical. These are uh, war-wounded soldiers from the First World War where the common injury was um, to stick your head above the trenches and uh, have your face shot. And nowadays um, it tends to be more explosives from IUDs coming up from below, which I think are even more disabling. Um, But the challenge was to try to... to, uh, reconstruct these people to get them back into society, to give them dignity and self-confidence. These, incidentally, are not the British wounded. These are the German wounded who we were shooting up, and that's the trouble with wars. Everybody suffers. Next slide, please. And I've become very interested in in looking at, at, not just looking at people... Uh, people's faces in terms of symmetry and sort of statuesque way. I, I'm very interested in trying to look at how the body works. 
And so we've done a lot of studies, for example, on the face. Uh, we do a lot of studies on limbs as well, looking at normal function. And when you're thinking about your hand, you look upon it as a tool that grips, you know. And for the surgeon, it's pretty easy to try and restore that because you want something that grips. When you look at somebody's face, you look upon it as a rather mystical thing. Nobody really analyzes, doctors don't even analyze what are all the muscles and what are they doing. You know, where does each muscle arise and where does it insert? So we've done a lot of studies on how the, how the face works. It doesn't work like this. It's not like a trap door. Next slide. It works a bit more like this. This was a slide that the Sunday Times got hold of from our collection. But basically, there's a lot of subtlety and fine movements in the face, which we would love to be able to restore as surgeons. Next slide, please. And of course... Um, it's not just in recent times that people have been interested in, in, in appearance and facial movement. These are drawings of Leonardo da Vinci on the left. And uh, we, we, we can see how he analysed all these different facial shapes. And although nowadays we probably think upon those people on the left as being a bit uh, disfigured, perhaps... Uh, these, are probably, these would probably be the people you'd be meeting in the streets of any medieval town before there were dentists and when a lot of the, the minor things that surgeons could treat were, no long, were not currently treatable. And as histories move forward, we, we see the very detailed anatomical dissections of an anatomist called Albinus on the, the right. And so... Um, it's important for doctors to realise, really, the, the context of the age in which we live, that the, the history of how we've developed an anatomical knowledge and how we apply that to the treatment of patients. Next slide, please. So, museums are extremely important to teach doctors. And although we're a little bit disparaging nowadays about the body snatchers of time gone by, um, a huge amount of knowledge was derived from those activities which we have all benefited from to greater or lesser extent. And it's rather difficult to go back into history and, and know when you uh, draw a line and, and punish the, the past. Um, we do things differently nowadays. We consent to give bodies to, to science and we don't, we're not yet consenting to bits of ourselves put in museums, not very much anyway. And I think we probably ought to be doing more of that. I think we ought to be showing what modern surgery can do and put it, putting, um, and you can have any bit of me you want, but not yet. Um, I, 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 I do think that we should be showing things like hip replacements in museums. And very interesting, the point you make, Ruth, about um, the, 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 the focus just being on the spine. But, you know, one thing that's changed dramatically in museums, and it's a microcosm of what's happening in society, is that museums were for doctors, surgeons, just to focus on one little thing and look at it. Like, I have a mental picture of what osteomyelitis in a leg bone looks like, and there was nothing else attached to this at all, not even a name, and it wasn't part of a patient. But I suppose I learned my patient communication skills at the bedside, and I learned my pathology in the museum. And It's all changed now. We should tie that together. But also, museums are also for the public, because the knowledge that used to be kind of kept away from all of you by us or by my predecessors, um, is no longer uh, the way that things happen. There is knowledge out there on the web. The doors of this institution are open to the public. 
you're all welcome to come and see. And I think we do need to display material in a rather different way. We do need to give it a human context. Perhaps doctors were frightened of that human context in the past, faced with things that you couldn't really challenge. You know, you, we, 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 in the past, we really tried to keep ourselves completely emotionally detached from the pathologies we were treating. And I think now that that's changed. I think doctors are much more, they have to be much more aware of the whole patient context. You're treating a patient, you're treating a lifestyle, you're treating a family, it's a different situation. So next slide, please. So for, having learned a little bit about anatomy and interested at how things move, we've done a lot of scientific studies. We did this study on how lips move. This was a, a volunteer medical student who... Uh, no doubt, um, I wouldn't have failed him in his exams if he'd refused to take part in this. At least that's what he thought. And we put all these probes on his thing to look at how his facial muscles worked. And with this sort of knowledge, we're able to get better operations for facial reconstruction. Next slide, please. And so the things we do now as surgeons, we, we are trying to reconstruct people. We're trying to go as far as we can to shift people back into the sort of body of society. If they're in, in, afflicted suddenly with an injury, we try and get them back to near normal anatomy. We don't get there, but we get part way there. And again, it's all about restoring dignity. So just to show what surgery can do, this is a girl. I mean, put up your hands, anybody who's not seen CSI. Oh, yeah. Channel 5. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. Anyway, you won't see anything as gruesome as you're going to see in television every night of the week. This is a girl who was scalped in a car accident, and uh, she was a passenger in the car, and the driver felt so bad, she offered to give her some of her scalp. Now, what's being done here is a bit of her scalp's being lifted up with the little blood vessels inside. Next slide, please. It's moved over to the donor, and this is the girl who's received the scalp. Next slide. And neither of them had enough scalp, so we put balloons under the scalp and inflated them to stretch them up. Next slide. So they look a bit funny with balloons in their head. Next slide. The balloons are out, and they both got a good head of hair. So these modern things are all based on our anatomical knowledge, which we learn from museums. So that's why doctors come to museums. Next slide, please. And we can do all sorts of reconstructive things nowadays, but um, there are limits. This gentleman, for example, uh, fell in the cement mixer at the top. The diagrams on either side are all the fractures and things. But he actually uh, took off both hands and a leg. We reconstructed him. Uh, on my side, that's his left hand. And on the other side, the thumb is actually his great toe because we couldn't do anything else with the leg. So you take all the spare parts, put them together and make a patient. So we can do these things now. To do this, surgeons have got to learn a lot of detailed anatomy, and they learn that from coming to places like the museum. And we should actually be showing a lot of these operations in museums nowadays. These are the modern things that we do. And also upstairs we have simulations, so they can practice. They're not practicing. Young doctors aren't practicing on patients anymore. Young surgeons aren't practicing on patients. You'll be pleased to hear they practice on simulations. Next slide, please. But at the end of the day, you're not going to get a patient who is completely normal because there are limitations. We can't control the scarring. So what we're trying to do is we use the knowledge that's there from anatomy 
We use the learning we get from museums. We try and make the patient as far back towards normal as you can. And then you try and boost their uh, self-worth and their psychology. This is a friend of mine called James Partridge who runs a charity called Changing Faces. And he runs courses to give people uh, confidence about any disfigurement they may have. He did turn over a Land Rover some years ago. And uh, this is his Mark II face and uh, his Mark II hands. And uh, he, he is completely convinced he's normal. And he is normal. He's got a beautiful blonde wife and lovely children and runs this charity and uh, spends his weekends in Guernsey and basically has a wonderful life. And he would not admit to any sort of um, disability. So there are many forms of disability. Uh, they may be functional, they may be uh, appearance, and at the end of the day, what we're all trying to do really is to have people back in normal society and have society accept them. One night we were in the tube and a chap was staring at James and James just turned around to me and said, don't, the chap immediately looked away. And James said, don't look away. He said, don't, don't feel embarrassed. He said, everybody looks at me. I'm not surprised. If I saw me in the tube, I'd be looking too. It's a normal reaction. And then he started explaining. He turned his Land Rover over. He ran a charity and all the rest of it. And I think by the time we came off the tube, this chap was ready to give him a donation for his charity. <laughs> so um, anybody who has a disability, um, you're really normal. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much indeed. And that's, uh, it's extremely revealing about the uh, surgical uh, attitude to museums, which is interesting. But also running through, I sense there the, the um, uh, unsurprising urge in the medical profession to uh, kind of reify the normal and this urge to kind of get back to the normal and reconstruct what that is. And I think in that respect, we'll hear interesting, and inter I think this is part of what Jew's work responds to. Uh, Jew Gosling is our final speaker for today. Um, she uh, is an artist, an activist, and a writer, and her um, exhibition, uh, Abnormal Towards a Scientific Model of Disability, is uh, climaxing its uh, international tour here in its ninth venue at the Royal College of Surgeons. And it's also, I'm very pleased to say, the subject of her recent book, which is available at all good bookstores, or at the very least at uh, our bookstore, and will be available as you depart today in the front hall. Um, Jill, I think, uh, will speak today about her responses to <coughs> planting her work in this most medical of contexts. Jill. Thanks. I reread the advert for this event and, um, and I knew exactly what Sam was talking about when he wrote that within medical museums, the human specimen is shown as an example of a disease, injury or illness. Little consideration is given to the person who was once connected to a broken limb or a tuberculous spine. Now that was my initial response when I first visited the Hunterian Museum. And it led me to make a piece called the Memory Jar Collection. 
This is a piece that's been installed for the duration of the abnormal exhibition in the centre of the museum's crystal gallery, which contains Hunter's collection of body parts. However, it was only my initial response. As I began the research and development for the memory jar collection, I realised just how valuable Hunter's collection must have been to generations of training surgeons. And I also realised how radical and daring Hunter's collecting was at a time when the church had only recently and very grudgingly lifted its prohibition on autopsies. At best, Hunter was operating on the edges of the law when he began his collection, even when he was using body parts from his own patients. So really it would have been extremely unwise of him to draw attention to the provenance of the body parts by labelling them with the details of the person they had come from. And indeed, it would have been risky, to say the least, to remind anyone of the humanity of the person from whom the body parts have been removed, particularly given the prevalence of beliefs about the literal, physical nature of the resurrection. You know, people might argue that if they were buried without their arm, they would be resurrected without their arm. Within my research, it was interesting, too, to control to contrast hunters and similar collections within other medical museums with the role and nature of photography. Because photography, even more than collections like hunters, has been used to categorise human beings or their body parts as either normal or abnormal since the first known medical photograph was taken in 1847. And indeed, the vast majority of photographs that exist of disabled people throughout the 20th century are either medical or charitable. And the charitable images are closely linked to individual medical abnormalities. I explored this use of photography to categorise human beings within the first piece that I made when I was doing the residency at the National Institute of Medical Research that led to the exhibition, That's a piece called Abnormal One, which you have a copy of in your packs. But within the memory jar collection, though, I question whether photography can really preserve identity any more than Hunter's collection does. Each of the 90 preserving jars within my collection contains a photograph of an animal or a human (coughs) focusing on one part of their body, Each jar is numbered and visitors can consult the online catalogue next to the piece within the Abnormal website to read about some of the memories that I attach to the images. So the identity apparently is very clear. You can see who the person was, what the relationship is with me as the artist and collector. However, I also encourage visitors to reflect on the fact that we have no idea of the identity of the majority of people in photographs that exist today. We've all seen huge kind of boxes of photographs when relatives die with no labels whatsoever. Or I've been working with another exhibition up in Camden where at the English Folk Dance and Song Society they, they've just discovered a whole box of photographs of you know, wonderful people from the early 20th century. But the captions say simply things like tea on the lawn. So, you know, in the future, will photographs really preserve identity any better than Hunter's collection does? With digital photographs, most of us don't even print our photographs out. They're that ephemeral. So, when you asked me to reflect for a few minutes on the subject, I thought, well, the real issue to me is 
as I think people have already identified, how medical museums present their collections, to what extent are the collections presented uncritically, to what extent are visitors encouraged to reflect on the sheer diversity among human bodies, and to what extent are they encouraged simply to divide humans and their body parts into either normal or abnormal? To what extent are disabled people encouraged to engage with the exhibits and the way in which they're presented? Are disabled people visible within the museum's staff and volunteer workforce? Above all, does a medical museum encourage its staff and visitors to believe in disability as being a medical condition, a personal problem that only the medical profession can solve? Or does it present impairment as a normal part of the human condition, and encourage both staff and visitors to recognise the attitudinal and environmental barriers that prevent disabled people from participating fully in society. And this in turn is reflected in the extent to which museums ensure that humans of every age and physical type are included in their activities. For example, by ensuring that events like this are made accessible by providing interpretation and other services like the palantypist as standard. So I would argue that the collections themselves are neutral in their meaning. We're all capable of seeing the connection between the macro and the micro, of recognising the enormous contribution to human knowledge that medical collections like Hunters have made. What gives the collections their meaning is the way in which they're curated and presented and the historical and social contexts in which museums operate. But um, really, I'm interested in knowing what everybody else thinks. Thank you, Drew, and thank you to all our speakers. I suggest that we digest this smorgasbord, this buffet of different opinions on medicine, museums and disability and uh, go away for just a moment or two, and then we'll reconvene and perhaps have some questions for and discussion. Thank you very much to our speakers. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd care to take your seats. What we'll do, uh, first of all, we think that uh, my colleague has worked his magic wonders over the computer. Uh, We'll have a go at uh, making this start. The hat's made of felt and the uh, bottom of the veil is made of linen. It's got a single eye hole and the hat's got a peak, as you can see. When I had long hair, I used to hide my face a lot with my hair. I used to love it. It was a security blanket. And I felt protected by it. I mean, he, he was literally thought of as a thing, an animal. And I mean, people actually think that now sometimes about disabled people. Um, and I guess that he just had to hide away from it through that hood to protect himself against the harsh comments and stares. 
the uh, hat is the size of a the circumference of a man's waist, and Joseph, it indicates just how large Joseph's head was. It caused him great difficulties throughout his life, the overgrowth of bone and flesh on his head. But it is natural to be interested in difference. I mean, when I look at a picture of John Merritt, I want to know what his face feels like. I want to touch it. I want to know whether it's lumpy or squiggly or hard. I think that's natural. What I don't want to do is fear him or ridicule him, as so many seem to have done. But what is it like to be stared at and isolated this way? Oh, public property. Um, you know, I'm, I, like uh, many other people, uh, we're public property. We get on a bus, we're a spectacle. From the moment we open the front door, we're a spectacle. You have to be prepared for that, be, be prepared for the onslaught. Richard, did you want to reflect on the video? Really just to, I suppose, re-emphasise it was trying to insert a, that, a, a new uh, kind of story into uh, on top of the other stories which were already there around Merrick and which were really privileging a, a personal and emotional and a human response to a collection um, and, and a story, but seeing that also alongside the... The more, that more familiar uh, curatorial voice which you see through, through the archivist, Jonathan. That's all. Thank, you. Thank you, and I'm very glad we were able to show you that. Um, we have a good half an hour now for questions and discussion. Now, I know that our panellists are eager to ask each other questions, but in the interests of democracy, I'd like to open it out to the floor first. And what I'll do is seek to give everyone an opportunity to uh, ask a question my colleagues uh, will get to you as quickly as they can holding the microphones, so if you'd be patient with us. If you'd like to ask a question, just wave at me and I'll try to uh, come to you in the order in which uh, uh, you've asked the question. Please, our first question at the front here. Um, thank you. I'm Maria Almendra McBride. I'm an international broadcaster and I'm currently covering the London Film Festival. And um, there are many movies there. I'm not saying they're good or bad, I'm not qualifying them. But um, it, this year, for some reason, many movies have to do with the mind and the, the dysfunctions of the body and the mind. Um, let's talk about Kevin, uh, Take Shelter, The Hot in the Woods. Uh, even Snowtown, which I saw today, in which someone kills a disabled person just because they look different. So I'm glad that uh, the doctor mentioned the television, because my question to the panel, and very much to the artist, Jew, uh, who I saw the exhibition um, last time I was here, um, is um, how much do the media and the uh, people in communications have a responsibility to address the issues that you yourselves are uh, suggesting, and how, how, to, how to make the rest of the world, uh, through media, um, help in, in changing attitudes, in, in, in challenges, prejudices, uh, 
I, I myself would very much like to help, so that's one of my questions. <laughs> Jude, do you want to respond to that? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And I think you've probably got to distinguish between the purely commercial media and their responsibility to their shareholders and the publicly funded media and the responsibility they might have to the rest of us. It's certainly something I feel very strongly about. And, of course, it isn't simply disabled people who are largely invisible. I mean, all sorts of people are invisible within the images we see around us. But I think what we tend to get in the 21st century is very much what I would call freak show television. And, and I think in terms of responsibility, I think I would very much like to pick on Channel 4. <laughs> and I would, link, you know, I would link that, you know, what I would describe as freak show television back to what I've described in the exhibition as a scientific model of disability, where we believe that disability and ageing are things that will shortly become just part of our past, that every day the media is reporting new stories about new drugs for immortality, new research that's going to sort of prevent ageing, or, you know, at the very least we might all be young until we die. So if you believe that disability and ill health and ageing are shortly going to be something in the past, then they merely have a curiosity value now, and I think that's when you go back to programmes that show you very much what a 19th century freak show would show you, which are disabled people doing ordinary things, but because they're disabled, this is somehow kind of felt to be extraordinary, and there's also a sort of huge amount of sort of focus on their impairments. I think I'd pick on Channel 4 because they are publicly funded, but also because I think a great many of us as disabled people were quite, I don't know, not happy, I should say, to put it politely, when the Paralympic coverage was taken away from the BBC, who've got such an outstanding reputation around the world for covering disability sport, and given to Channel 4. And, of course, the very first marketing campaign they did for it was called Freaks of Nature. Well, I don't think that's very helpful. You know, well, Channel 4's position, having, you know, of course, refused to apologise and standing by, Channel 4's position is, well, when you see the programmes, you know, it's all very different because what we have is exciting new science about their disabilities. And I just sort of sit there in despair because I think, well, there's nothing exciting or new about focusing on people's... So you know, so-called inabilities, and you know, highly inappropriate. I would have thought when you're actually looking at them in terms of sport. But I think critically, everybody who watches Channel Four sees the marketing campaigns, and very few people, kind of statistically, actually watch the programmes about the Paralympic athletes. I mean, as co-chair of a national charity, I think I had an appeal from them recently where they wanted to make a, a series called The Undateables. And again, you know, there's a sort of careful little paragraph where when you actually watch the programme, the graphics will show the undisappearing, but I don't think that really gets through to the bulk of the population. So, um, so yes, I do think the media have a responsibility, and I don't think they're fulfilling it, but like I say, it's not simply disabled and deaf people who are invisible. I think there's a whole, you know, I think the vast majority of us are really not visible within those images. Ruth, I think you had a comment and then a question at the back. No, I didn't have yes. a comment. I just wondered if people would like to make a comment rather than a question. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Uh, uh, Ruth's uh, point is that if you'd like to make a comment, you're very welcome as well. You don't need to do the academic thing of making a comment and then pretending it's a question. You're welcome to make a comment. Uh, a comment or a question at the back, and then a comment or a question here, and then here. Funnily enough, Ruth, this is in fact a comment, um, so I was one step ahead of you there. Uh, just to pick up on what you were saying about Channel 4, I was, I was actually quite involved with that, their initial freak show, the, the Faces kind of um, programme that they had with Adam, uh, and also I was invited to, try, to, to audition for the dating show, uh, but I wasn't disabled looking enough, I believe, <laughs> for, for their show. Um, and I had, I had a, a very direct conversation with the people who run uh, Betty or the people who do all those mm. sorts of kind of like shock and awe disability shows. Um, I had a very frank conversation with them ab- exactly about the naming and, and the kind of portrayal of those shows because I think it's, a, it's really important that that sort of, that sort of experience is out into, in the world and um, more people get to see the lives of disabled people and kind of to normalise disability in society um, and so I kind of had, a, had this fight with Betty about, about their naming and, and they gave me the, their kind of classic response that the, the, the way they're naming the shows is to make people who want to see a freak show go and watch the show and then to try and give, it, give them this kind of like a reversal on, on, their, on their opinion of the show um, but to be honest I reckon that they failed in that fact. <laughs> they seem to have just made, made their shows exactly what they're trying to stop people seeing. And it's, it's a terrible thing to see. Thank you. Uh, comment here from the lady, and then... I'll try and be quick. Um, I've been deaf all my life. And I had a lot of support. My mother, who tried to lessen the disability, say it's only hard of hearing. And I had a lot of training, speech, and so on, which has helped me. Something more? No, I thought I heard a telephone. I'm sorry. Um, It might surprise you that when I was a very small boy, I thought that liars were disabled in some way in the mind. Have you any comment about that? People who told lies were disabled. When I was small, I oh. had that in my mind. There's something wrong with them. Any comment from the panel? I had a colleague whose uh, father had, been am- had an amputation in the war. And when she was about three or four, she went swimming with another family and she said, why does your father get two legs? So it's, it's, it's all a question of what you're used to, I think. Yeah. Something you mentioned about your father, your mother helping you um, so much. When I saw the picture on here of the lady who painted with her shoulders, mm. her beautiful lace collar and all her beautiful appearance, I thought she must have had help to dress so beautifully as that. And that's the other thing that we lose. We, see, we might see the disabled person, but we don't see their helpers. And with, you know, the lady with scoliosis that I've talked about in the gallery, we don't know, there's, there's no record of the social background of that specimen, or most of the specimens, actually. There's only a few where we do know about their stories. And I, I, you can't rebuild them, but I think the idea of getting other disabled people to comment is a very interesting one. So there's a very patient young lady 
Yeah. Um, my name's Grace, and I work in the learning department at the Natural History Museum. So um, the thing that I'm trying to get across most of all is the fact that we've got animals that are real, but they're not alive, and obviously young children find that quite hard to, uh, to take in that particular fact. And actually, I was really interested by uh, Gus's talk. Um, you showed a picture of the um, soldiers who were injured in the First World War. Um, I don't know if you know, but I've been um, researching a bit about the history of the learning at the Natural History Museum, and actually it was the soldiers who were injured in the First World War um, who were responsible for the first handling collection for education at the Natural History Museum. So it was in the 1920s in the basement, and that's when they first started to be able to handle some of the objects, and that's what's grown into our investigate space today. So I think really by looking at how you can help people who've got a a particular... Um, need, then actually it helps things for every, everybody. Thank you. Right. <clears throat> I'm going a bit deaf too, so I didn't follow the, the end of that. Was there a crystallised question? Sorry. No, it was a comment. It was a comment. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I thank you. I, I, I value that. Uh, uh, the lady We're all the disabled, front. you see. My hearing's going. I'm being nagged at home. Go and get a hearing aid. Uh, lady at the front, and then the gentleman here. And, uh, My colleague will give you a microphone. I'm 86 years young, and I would like to challenge the medical profession. Three years ago, I was given um, a full knee replacement and um, a dynamic hip screw, which sounds very beautiful. <laughs> but the thing is that the mental and the emotional aspect after every operation is not taken on board. And although I'm registered, severely disabled, my brain says, get on with it, girl. And I do. And I lead a very full life writing poetry and letters and articles. And so I think that you don't do your job properly and you should really take on board the mental and emotional aspect of every operation. I still love you. Professor McGrather as our token... I'm not going to argue. I'm going to quote a book by Jonathan Sachs. Uh, I think it's Jonathan Sachs who wrote a book about his broken leg. No, it's the other Sachs. It's the other Sachs. Oliver Sachs. Sachs. Thank you, it's Oliver Sachs. And he described eloquently how the orthopaedic surgeons came round every morning and looked at his x-rays and said, hmm not much change or hmm, maybe getting a bit better and walked on, never spoke to him. And he kept trying to say that he had lost feeling in his leg and, and I think eventually he got the message across and they just completely ignored it and all they were interested in was the bone. Now, this is a problem with orthopaedic surgeons. Yeah. Uh, but actually, it's, it's a problem with all surgeons. But there, there are doctors who have very good bedside manner. I mean, by and large, the gynaecologists and the obstetricians have great bedside manner. And many other specialties do. It's a strange thing that, that, that people are a bit typecast. But in general, surgeons are not terribly good at, at, at thinking about the whole patient. We're doing our best. We're getting more girls into the profession. And I think that's changing our attitude as well. And I think through meetings like this and through realising that we are opening the doors of our institutions to the public, I think we are actually getting better at communication, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, I think the nurses ought to get back to the basics. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
bedside manner too. Well, I think the nurses are getting worse, and I hope the doctors are getting better. Could I move that on from something and just add something to that? Yes, please. I mean, I was really interested when you were saying that you didn't feel disabled. And I think, you know, one of the things that we try and do as disabled artists is to say, well, none of us fit the stereotype, you know, this imaginary disabled person. I don't think a single disabled person on this planet feels disabled if you think of the stereotypes. And again, I think one of the the difficulties with this, you know, either complete absence of images or a sort of focus on medical images and charitable images and the freak show is that we we still can't actually kind of get our heads around the fact that to be disabled is just a normal part of the human condition and we're just normal people just like everybody else. Mm. So, I mean, thank you for that. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if I'm being fair or not, but I get the general impression by the um, committee there that it's on the visual side of disability, but what about deafness or what about silence uh, disability, mental illness? Um, why isn't this mentioned? Um, yeah. Sure, I'll, um, I'll, I'll start with that one. I think it's a really good point. We had um, quite a lot of discussions around um, our, our early research into this area. Um, we were asked by a number of people, particularly museum curators, how do you define disability? What, who's in and who's out? Do you want to look at... Um, because we were asking what, what was held in collections. And so, um, you know, curators would come out with trays of, of spectacles and say, does this, does this count? Does this count? Does this fall within the boundaries of your project? And we discussed that with... We had a think tank of disabled people at the heart of the project. And um, we were very quickly... Um, urged to challenge that response in museums and to resist the temptation to have very fixed boundaries about who's in and who's out, what counts as disabled, what what doesn't, and instead uh, to keep a very loose and open definition. So I'm slightly dodging the question, but at the same time, we also, we we made an effort without going through a kind of a very uh, laborious tick box exercise, we made an effort in our project to bring in people with very diverse experiences, which included sensory impairments, and to tell their stories through museum collections, um, but without trying to kind of try and have one of every group. But we did want to, to reflect that diversity of experience. I mean, I get the impression that museums are very... Ob- you know, historically, not so much today, that museums are very object-based. And I was quite struck with the idea that somebody's chair was on display, somebody's hearing aid was on display. That it, you know, because I think that also brings in this idea that you know we as disabled people are part, you know, our equipment is actually an extension of our body. And it was if they couldn't get their body parts on display, it was almost the next best thing. And I think the difficulty is that when you tell the story of deaf people or people with learning difficulties or the stories of the asylums that there are very few objects left you know we have in terms of the asylums we have the buildings and they in themselves can be very evocative but I think that's why the kind of the sort of modern museums and the oral history of disabled people and the sort of history of disabled people today is so important because we can't always go back and find those stories where they haven't been recorded Can I also make a comment? Um, We did some research for Colchester Museums who were interested in um, 
disabled people's view of museums and heritage. And as part of that research, we did some work with deaf communities as well. One of the big things that emerged from that was um, many deaf people not identifying as being disabled, but as a linguistic minority. And that that was a very strong finding from that research of a, a desire to be seen in a different way and to have uh, experiences presented in a different way as well. So I think th- there's a very politicised aspect to that as well. A question here? <laughs> I'm afraid it's not quite a question yet, but um, just a point that I think is really interesting that's come out of all the panel discussions is this relationship between the past and the present. You have to press. And, uh, and um, the idea that museums sit um, at a cross-section between the past and the present and act in dialogue between past and present. Um, and thinking particularly about the Hunterian Museum as a relic and as a historical monument in itself, how do we reflect our current thinking and the way that disabled people are represented and treated by society today whilst preserving the historical contingencies in which that collection was created and that it stands for? Um, Is the way to do that through temporary exhibitions and through interventions that provide a different perspective on a historical collection or is there something we can do that's more embedded and permanent to redress that balance and create that dialogue? Just some thoughts. I find my colleagues looking at me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think your question is framed excellently. You've noticed that the way we do it is to leave very little interpretation around the original Hunterian specimens and to bring an exciting work, contemporary work like Jews, as a temporary exhibition and to bring in perspectives like Ruth's in the audio guide. Uh, we haven't adjusted the core, very medical interpretation in our central collection. And we don't plan to because we'd like to leave it as flexible as possible. All interpretation of museums, as we know, is very layered, and we'd like to do imaginative, exciting things with the layers. I also think it's a great question, and the only want to kind of add to Sam's or think about that, I was prompted by, by Gus talking about the museum in the past being for doctors and I think we're all quite convinced of that value of the collections for medical advancement I think that's something that's kind of come come out across all the speakers but that was that was then the museum was closed and he said it was you know the doors were closed to the, um, the public it was for doctors only and now the museum's open to the public and so we've got events like this and the temporary exhibition and so on beginning to reconfigure the stories that the museums tell for the massive change reality which is that the public in all its diversity can now walk through those doors and have the kinds of responses or or perhaps not have they're not always enabled to have the kinds of responses we want so i think you know you maybe as well as the wraparound stuff you end up needing and i think you know this goes across all kinds of museums to think of them they tend to lag behind the times, but maybe it's time we should embrace that fact that they should change to the be, have, be attuned to the sensitivities of the day, really. And that 
in this context is a demand from disabled people to be able to see different kinds of stories in there because otherwise with the problem with the temporary stuff is it goes <laughs> and you're you know that's just and this event has been really stimulating but and we can put it on the web and so on but the more permanent things carry on don't they which is troubling sometimes I think we should undertake some uh, academic partnerships to <laughs> fix the situation, perhaps with the venerable University of Leicester. Can, can I just say that I think that perhaps um, what we don't do enough in museums is to ask questions, and that often we think about interactivity in the museum as doing what I think are quite clunky interventions often. And actually, the most interactive element is when you get people to engage and to think And we don't even pose questions about the significance of collections like this as being of historic significance, but their relevance and significance in the contemporary world. And it's those questions which we need to ask, but we need to ask them in a way which, whilst acknowledges the context in which the historical context gives, I think, much more privilege to a contemporary values and context. And I, I... I think that we can't have specimens of parts of people on public display without answering some very, very challenging questions about those. Hi, this is perhaps a mean question, but it follows on a little bit from what you were just saying. I wonder how public the museum really is, Um, because I realise I came up with a colleague... We've been studying in London for several years and um, my colleague didn't know where we were going. And I'm just... It's a, I mean, it's a kind of a mean one to ask, really, but... No, it's a very good one and one that uh, uh, we're very keen to answer because we are working to um, expand our audiences, to diversify our audiences. And my colleagues at the back here are, you see before you, our excellent uh, learning and events team whose job it is to expand those audiences. We've increased our profile and our visit figures fourfold in the last decade, and we look to continue to do that. What we'll need, of course, is resources and support from the uh, council and trustees of the Royal College of Surgeons, (laughs) and we'll continue to try to do so with their support. I mean, I think when I brought the exhibition in, you know, that was my only concern is, you know, was it, you know, what kind of audience would it be? And I have to say, I mean, I've been to, I think, three events here since the exhibition opened six weeks ago, and I've just been astonished at the diversity. I mean, the big draw on Saturday, there were just so many people of every age and every description. I didn't know this museum was here till two years ago, but apparently kind of millions of Londoners and visitors do. So, yeah, I have to say, you know, you have got a very big, very diverse and, and seemingly very interested audience, you know, of literally every age. May I ask uh, how many people, if you'd raise your hands, if you hadn't visited the Hunterian Museum before this event series? Gold dust, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Any further comments or questions from Ruth? I've got a comment. I've got two two comments. One is that I think the collection is absolutely priceless and... Um, there's been such a terrible destruction of medical museums in the last, I would say, 20 years or so, 
institutions not valuing their collections, not looking after them. And although I would be more sympathetic with the person in the bottle and thinking, oh dear, how awful it must be to be a person in a bottle, I think those museums are absolutely priceless. And to lose the objects that are in bottles because there's no funds or no commitment to them is worse than having the person in the bottle in the first place. And just to, just to neglect them is, to me, a criminal, a criminal act. So I'm very worried about medical museums in general. And the other thing I wanted to say was that um, anonymity is a funny issue, a very strange issue. It's there at the time of Hunter because of body snatching and because he didn't want to identify who, whose bodies he'd stolen. He wasn't interested in the identity anyway. He was interested in the pathology. But now we have people donating body parts and so on to museums and... and uh, I mean, there's, I, I know of a case at the Royal London of a woman who donated her skeleton, and I know of an achondroplastic dwarf who donated his skeleton to, to, to St George's. But in both cases, uh, the one in the L Royal London, I wanted to tell the woman's story, and I wasn't allowed to use her photograph unless I blacked out her eyes. Now, she donated her body in the 1940s, and she was one of the first benefactors, as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned, one of the first benefactors of the National Health Service. And so I refused to, to use her photograph if I had to black out her eyes because if the Queen gives money, she's a benefactor. If some rich person gives money, they're a benefactor. This person had given their skeleton, and so to me, she's a benefactor, but I wasn't allowed to publish her photograph because of anonymity rules about specimens. And I think that's just bizarre. And the other one is an, an achondroplastic dwarf who has donated his skeleton to the medical school at St George's. And he's actually in the dissecting room in St George's in his little glass case. And the other slide I was going to show you was me with my kyphosis and my scoliosis standing next to the achondroplastic dwarf in the, uh, in the dissecting room. But he's not named, and unless you ask about him, you're not told who he was, what the nature of his bequest was. You know, there's no caption to say, this man, whatever his name was, donated his body to this room, and he's in this room to be sociable with the medical students. And that was why he was there. I, and I think that's a... I, <laughs> Uh, you leave us yeah. hanging there on a very provocative question on an evening that I hope has been full of provocative questions. If you come away from this evening with more questions than answers, then I think we've done our job well. I'd like to bring the formal part of this evening to a close um, by thanking my colleagues, uh, both from within the college and from beyond, yeah. for their logistical support. I'd like to ask you if you found on your chairs a small card relating to speech-to-text. Um, there's a green tray to put, in, put it in if you found speech-to-text useful and a red tray if you did not. I'd like to ask my colleague Hayley to plug our next event. Well, um, I've just read, of course, our actual next event uh, that fits in with this theme is... Friday the 11th of November when Jew is actually holding a free full day workshop and I repeat the word free it's free, there is no charge for this workshop so if you've got the time you should book onto it um, and you can find information about that on our website 
um, and you can also find it on Facebook. And on our website, you can find all the information about the events that we have uh, coming up. So please do look up on our website for future events, not just about abnormal, but about wider issues within um, the RCS as well. I'd like to thank all of you for coming, but finally to reserve our last thanks to those who so generously gave their time to our panel this evening. Thank you. Thank you.